On this week's episode of Talking Cinema, I'll be discussing the cult classic holiday Disney film, The Nightmare Before Christmas, how it became the beloved film it is today, and why the film continues to resonate with audiences so much all these years later. All this and more on this week's episode of Talking Cinema. And hello and welcome back to another fun-filled edition of Talking Cinema with your host, that's me, you should know by now, Christoph Hankerson, and I cannot believe it that we are in the middle of October, it's almost Halloween, we're about, depending on when you listen to this podcast, we're about 17, 18 days away, can't believe it. (laughs) Can't believe it's almost here. I hope a lot. Of, I hope all of you are enjoying this month. For those of you that do celebrate the holiday, and I also hope that you plan on having a safe one, as far as trick or treating or whatever you decide to do. You know, with all the COVID and everything that's going out there, I highly advise you to kind of do what they say and limit it. So maybe next year you can have bigger gatherings and whatnot. But with Halloween. There are a barrage of Halloween movies that myself, that I like to enjoy. And we're going to be reviewing one of those today, which actually it's a film that doubles as both Halloween and a Christmas movie. So I tend to pull it out several times over the course of October, November, and December. What movie am I talking about? Well, if you listen to the intro, you already know what it is. Is Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. So let's get to it, shall we then? (laughs) If you've seen the movie, you kind of understand that reference pretty well. So Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas was released around 27 years ago on October 29th, 1993. And believe it or not, it only had a modest intake at the box office. So you got to remember, at this point in time in Disney's company history, if you got the company timeline in your head and you know Disney well, you know at this point in time they were at the peak of their performance in the Disney Renaissance. You know, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin had came out and Lion King was scheduled to come out in theaters about eight months after this film. So it's like in between this, you have... The Nightmare Before Christmas, and believe it or not, because it was it was new, you know, nobody had really seen a, a full-length stop-motion animated film. I think the only version of stop-motion that most people had seen up until this point were all the old British Wallace and Gromit cartoons, which are brilliant. I love them; they're classics. But when it comes to full length this was the first one of its kind and they started filming this movie around late 1990 early 1991 and it's very fascinating i encourage you if you have the movie on dvd i'm not sure if it's a bonus feature on disney plus but if you have the movie on dvd i highly encourage you to take a look at the bonus section because the way that they put this movie together building the miniatures the sets it almost felt more like, even though it was an animated film, as a stop motion film, it almost felt more like a, a movie with real people just using miniatures because they actually, be, 
since they weren't you know drawing as much and using pencils to make their films kind of like the other animated films and computer animated films of the day it it really did feel like that it's it's really it's really fascinating just the whole process but yeah it, it only had the film i believe grossed significantly less than all those disney renaissance films that i just mentioned and you know it kind of for a little bit for a few years it really faded into obscurity it didn't really click with audiences probably until maybe late 90s early 2000s but i feel like by 2005 2006 that film got a second life and i know without a shadow of a doubt it was home video rentals um tv airings you know people just watching the movie over and over and over again on television and just the merchandise i believe it was around that time that hot topic started you know promoting the film and it, in a way in a weird way people who identified as goths flocked to this film and it just has a massive goth fan base which is really weird because I, if you know me you obviously know i'm the farthest thing from goth and emo or whatever you want to call it and i <laughs> Everybody's had their different phases. I don't think I ever really had a goth phase, even though I was really obsessed with skulls and crossbones in seventh and eighth grade. I don't think I ever really truly had a goth phase. <laughs> but all of that to say, you know, the film got a second life because of all those things. And, you know, but we're just going to kind of talk about some of my favorite parts because this has always been not just a favorite animated film, but probably one of my favorite films of all time. And I have a lot of favorite films, even though I do have a set top 10. I have a ton of favorite films from a variety of different genres. And Nightmare Before Christmas is one of them. And I can honestly say it is a movie that not only do I find myself watching, you know, October, November, and December during the Halloween and Christmas months of the year, but I also find myself watching it from time to time during the year. You know, it's, I feel like it's just one of those movies that you can really enjoy any time of the year, regardless. And so, without any further ado, we're going to dive right into the discussion on the film. So, as I, as I first mentioned, the film was released in 1993 and only had a modest box office intake compared to a lot of the other films that were around during that period of the Renaissance. And what, what was really interesting is this. I guess probably even sooner than those years I just mentioned is that Disney... So this is about eight years after the film was released, but Disney actually considered producing a sequel to Nightmare in 2001 using Pixar computer animation, the same animation that had made the Toy Story films and A Bug's Life and Finding Nemo and all these other great classics. They were going to use computer animation. However, Tim Burton wasn't going to have any of it. And here's what he had to say about that, all of that. It's a direct quote. I was always very protective of Nightmare not to do sequels or, or things of that kind. And then he goes on to say, you know, Jack visits Thanksgiving World or other kinds of things just because I felt the movie had a purity to it and the people that like it. And I think, I think the reasoning behind the quote is this. Yes, you could explore all of those various worlds 
aside from Christmas Town. You know, we obviously saw Halloween Town. We saw what was behind Christmas Town, and a lot of us, myself included, are probably wondering what's behind all those other doors. You know, what's behind Easter World? What's behind you know Valentine's Day World or St. Patrick's Day World? I think those were the only three other trees that had doors. You know, a lot of us were wondering. But I think that just goes to show you that some things are left to wonder, to the imagination. And, you know, I cannot blame Tim Burton for that because Nightmare Before Christmas is just one of those movies that, you know, doesn't need a sequel, doesn't need a TV special, as cool as it might would be to explore those other worlds or have the you know beloved characters of Jack and Sally and Zero, Lock, Shock and Barrel, the mayor, Dr. Finkelstein, all these great characters that we have grown to love and have grown to appreciate over the years. Even Sandy Claus himself can make an appearance. I think that would definitely, I 100% agree with what Tim Burton is saying. I think a sequel or reboot, or television special, holiday special, I think that could potentially ruin the integrity and the purity of the film. And I'm obviously speaking as both a fan and a critic of this wonderful movie. That's one thing I think that would ruin its legacy. Now, obviously, I have no control over what Disney's plans are, or with Disney Plus, and as of a few days ago, Disney's announcing that they're explicitly and specifically focusing on their streaming service you know so there's no telling what plans they may have for nightmare it's a very popular property it's obviously on the forefront of people's minds it's not as obscure as you know some other properties say you know james and the giant peach the other stop motion animated film made by disney it's a little bit more obscure even though the film even though the, the book you know is one of the most beloved children's stories out there by the wonderful world doll at the same time would people really want to see those characters no and there's a reason for it aside from the movie being somewhat obscure at this point in time the book was not left there wasn't really an open-ended ending to the movie or the book if you've read it the story ends once the story ends the story ends everything else is basically fan fiction at that point and so i get what tim is saying and i really really hope that Disney is not planning anything for the Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, keep the characters, you know, bring them out during Halloween Town. Hopefully next year we'll get to see them in Mickey's, Sp Mickey's Spectacular or wherever it's called, Disney World. But you know, hopefully we'll be able to see the characters there at the parks. But, you know, outside of the movie, I, I personally have no desire at all whatsoever to see a sequel or reboot or television special and i say that and i probably will eventually if they were to make one i probably want to be one of the first people to go watch it or stream it on disney plus it'll probably end up on disney plus with theaters potentially going into oblivion and live network television be probably be falling suit thanks to streaming services okay so now obviously the film was produced and kind of, you know, created from the mind of Tim Burton. So if you've got Tim Burton, you know, at this point in time, he's known for very dark and macabre kind of films. You know, he directed the first two Batman movies with Michael Keaton, and I think those are wonderful. Um, he also directed Beetlejuice, another movie that I really love. He did it with Scissorhands. 
And, you know, at that point in time, it's like, okay, you know, he's known for, you know, dark films. He also, so there's obviously he did the 2012 movie, Frank and Weenie, but years before this, almost 30 years before the full length movie came out, he did a 30 minute short. It was released on VHS. I remember renting it once. And I think I only saw it once because I don't ever remember it airing on the Disney channel, but he did a 20 to 30 minute special called Frank and Weenie. And Daniel Stern, who obviously we all know is Mar from Home Alone, he was actually in this particular short special. So for those of you that are listening and have Disney Plus, I encourage you, check out Frank and Weenie. I will probably be watching it this month. No, scratch that. I will definitely be re-watching it and revisiting it this month because I don't think I've seen the 30-minute short since I was a kid. So definitely be time to re-watch that one. And I'll also probably revisit the movie as well. But according to Henry Selleck, believe it or not, the legendary Vincent Price, who was probably, I mean, he's one of the most iconic voice actors of all time. And if I say his name, you probably think of one of two things. Disney fans probably know him best as the voice of Professor Radigan in The Great Mouse Detective, which is one of the most underappreciated films of all time from the Disney animated library. And a lot of you probably know him for his work his excellent and brilliant work and arguably the greatest music video ever filmed. I am referring to the thriller music video from Michael Jackson, the king of pop himself. Vincent J. Price lent his voice to a big portion of that wonderful video. It's one of the longest music videos ever made. It was almost the length of a television episode. I believe the video was about 13 minutes long. But man, was it entertaining. And man, did Vincent Price contribute to a lot of that. All that to say, he was actually originally cast as the role of Santa, but unfortunately his health was gradually starting to decline after the death of his wife. And even though he had recorded some lines for the Disney Studios at this point, his voice performance was deemed unusable and the role had to be recast. And unfortunately, Vincent Price actually passed away. As I was doing some research today, I found out Vincent Price actually passed away about four days before this film made its premiere in Hollywood, excuse me, or its premiere to the US and the world. So that would have been really cool if Vincent Price was in this movie, but unfortunately his health said otherwise. And another fun fact of trivia for you, before he became known as the bug-filled potato sack that we all know him to be, the iconic villain of The Nightmare Before Christmas, who was brilliantly voiced by Ken Page, Oogie Boogie, was originally going to be in one of the most Scooby-Doo-like things you could, that Disney could do. He was originally going to be Dr. Finkelstein in disguise. Wow. I am so glad Disney did not decide to go with that idea because that would have tanked big time. And I'm so glad Tim Tim Burton didn't stand for it either. I mean, he got so, apparently Tim Burton literally got so upset. And I'd love to see that because Tim Burton seems like a pretty even-killed guy. But apparently he got so upset at the idea that actually, literally, not figuratively, literally kicked a hole in the wall when that particular idea was pitched to him. Thank goodness. The Oogie Boogie we got in the film is much better than what what we would have originally got. Thank goodness. 
Now, this film is obviously known for its 10 songs that were written by composer Danny Elfman, who is a frequent collaborator of Tim Burton. He is to Tim Burton, basically what John Williams is to George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, as well as Hans Zimmer. He tends to collaborate a lot with certain directors as well. But Danny Elfman is Tim Burton's right-hand man. And obviously Danny Elfman is well-known for composing the theme for The Simpsons, which is the longest-running scripted television show in American history and one of the most iconic animated shows of all time. But all of that to say, you know, you can you can you can often tell. It's been said that you can often tell regarding theater how good a musical is going to be by its opening number. And the Nightmare Before Christmas was no different. I mean, this is Halloween literally sets the stage for the entire movie picture as perfectly as you can possibly do. And in my opinion, if I were to rank my top my top five opening scenes in film history, two of them are from Disney and two of them are from animated films. You can already guess the one is definitely The Lion King and Circle of Life. In fact, I would probably say that's the greatest opening in cinema history. I mean, nothing beats that epic, breathtaking scope of the circle of life. Nothing beats that. But Nightmare Before Christmas, that is in my top five as well. I mean, especially, I I have said this many times, the song is brilliant. It's brilliant. It's fun one to sing along with. But Jack literally rising out of that green fountain in Halloween Town, that is literally the cherry on top. It's the icing on the cake for that opening number. It's, I mean, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. There's nothing else I can say about it. it, it it's just fantastic. It's breathtaking. Um, another, another, another brilliant song. I mean, really, a lot of the scenes that I really enjoy in this film are kind of derived. They have a song around them. You know, the dialogue is probably not the best in this movie. As much as I love the movie, the dialogue is very weak. But it's one of the few times because of how brilliant the songs are, because songs are meant to progress the story of, a, of an animated musical along, I can forgive this movie for having weak dialogue. I mentioned this is Halloween and Kidnap the Santa Claus, which was done by Lock, Shock and Barrel, Halloween's finest trick-or-treaters and Oogie Boogie's boys. That is just vintage Danny Elfman in a nutshell. I mean, those lyrics, if there were, if there was a song, if there were lyrics to encapsulate the work of Danny Elfman and specifically the work that he did on this film, I believe, I firmly believe it's Kidnapped the Santa Claus. I mean, just listen to the song after this podcast or watch the movie on Disney Plus after you listen to this episode of the podcast and tell me that's not Danny Elfman coming out. That's not, that doesn't ooze his, his composing genius. I mean, just, you know, just the fact that they were, you know, kidnap the Santa Claus, chop him in the beds, you know, put him in a boiling pot, butter him up. And another great thing I, I feel like that adds to that scene it so well is the fact that Lock, Shock, and Barrel were in this walking bathtub, which became one of the more iconic bits of the film, kind of up there with what I'm going to talk about next. But, you know, <laughs> It's incredible. It's a fun song. 
it's sick, it's twisted, it's demented, but it comes from the mind of Danny Elfman and it's perfect. It's great. And I, and that, that, which brings me to my next song and that's, and that's the underrated one. Now, when I was a kid, I honestly thought this song was as boring as all. But as I've gotten older and as I've watched the movie more and more over the years, I have grown to appreciate Jack's Lament. And I firmly believe it is one of the deepest songs ever written in an animated film. While Kidnapped the Santa Claus probably encapsulates everything that's Danny Elfman, Jack's Lament is everything that encapsulates the character of Jack Skellington. If you look at the history of Disney animation and all their films, all of their main heroes and heroines have had their song and that encapsulates their wants, their desires, what they want you. And Little Mermaid was part of your world and Ariel's, you know, Ariel obviously in that particular song is expressing her desire to be human. Um, out there from Hunchback of Notre Dame that is expressing Quasimodo's desire to be out with the people instead of ostracized and demonized and hold up like a prisoner in the bell tower, you know, and and I could, I, could, I could go song after song after song, When Will My Life Begin from Tangled, a more recent one. Just, you know, they're, 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 just, they're expressing their, their needs and their wants. And I remember when I watched the wonderful documentary, Waking Sleeping Beauty, which I highly recommend, it's on Disney Plus. I own the documentary, but it is on Disney Plus for those of you that don't have DVDs. I recommend watching it. And I know Howard Ashman was, went on record in a video saying that usually it's that third number. So the first number kind of sets the tone for the entire film or the entire play for the theater show. But that third number where the hero or the heroine is expressing what they want, that's, you know, that kind of, you know, that kind of, you know, it gives you an inside look as to what they're feeling. And Jack's Lament just, kind of encapsulates the fact that you know he's tired of tricks, he's tired of treats, he's tired of scaring people, he's tired of all the spookiness and creepiness and eeriness that goes with Halloween, you know, and in an, put it the encapsulate in a nutshell, he's disenfranchised with it. He's disenchanted with it. He wants something else. He wants to explore another world, another holiday. And somehow, some way, obviously because it's called a nightmare before Christmas. He goes to Christmas Town, and that I mean, I love the "What's This" song. That's also one of the more iconic songs from the film, mainly because of the fact that it was used in a lot of Disney trailers in the late '90s. But aside from that, I mean, that's I mean, that's a great song in and of itself. But you know, the fact that Jack you know, hatches a plan to kidnap Santa Claus and you know, to fill Santa's shoes and to, to bring some cheer to the boys and girls of the world. I thought, I thought that was wonderful. You know, Jack expressing that in the lament. And obviously that particular song features probably the most iconic shot in the film. It's the one that you see on the poster. It's him kind of walking down that moving hill. It's in that moving hill that was obviously inspired by Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And when you think about it, there obviously are, there's a, a lot of similarities between Jack and the Grinch, or there's a few actually, but you know, 
But yeah, Jack's Lament, wonderful song, wonderful song. Okay, so there's obviously only been a handful of perfect movies that have ever been made in cinema history. And one of the things that really bothered me in this movie is the, the only blemish in this movie is this, Jack and Sally's romance. I feel they could have done a much better job at conveying the whole Jack and Sally love story in this movie. I mean, the fact that they get together and sing a little song. I mean, I feel like, you know, relationships have to be a two-way street. And I feel like a lot of it was very much one-sided. And I also feel like that they could have done a better job of putting Jack and Sally on the big, on the screen in more scenes in the film. And I don't think there was enough. There wasn't enough character interaction. For one, I thought one thing that kind of really hurt the film is how short it was. If it was a little bit longer, if they had a a few more scenes with Jack and Sally. I would have bought their romance at the end of the movie. I mean, yeah, it was nice that they sang their little song, you know, we're simply meant to be together, you know, because you're the one that understands me. But if they had just, if they had actually, you know, put a little bit more time and put a little bit more effort in putting these two characters together, I mean, when you watch other Disney films of that era, like The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, I mean, just go down the line. The animators made sure that the romance wasn't sloppily put together, that there was actually some decent interaction, and that there was character development, and that the character development kind of helped the relationship develop. And I thought that's kind of where this particular romance kind of crashed and burned. And I mean, like I said, I feel I feel like even though the movie's great, I feel like if it if the film had a longer runtime, you know, as great as the songs are, as brilliant as the animation is, as stunningly visual as it is, I think they could have done a great better job with developing Jack and Sally's characters regarding their relationship. So because I feel like the romance was kind of just slapped on there because they're like, oh, you know, if Ariel and Eric can be together, if Belle and the Beast can be together, and Aladdin and Jasmine, then let's have our own little dark and eerie Halloween town romance with Jack and Sally. I think that's what they were going for, but they could have done better. It's it's the one thing that keeps the film from being perfect, but it's only, eh, it's only a minor blemish for me. I still enjoy watching the film year after year after year, which kind of segues into our last portion of this week's ep of this episode. And that's the le the legacy of the film, the lasting legacy. The film has obviously been out as of this year for 27 years. So man, hard to believe, but this film is three years away from turning 30. And from my personal experience as well, and I feel like I speak for a lot of the fans of this wonderful film, I would say you know, from it was a combination of the unforgettable songs. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many times I find myself humming "This Is Halloween," "Making Christmas," "What's This," "Kidnap the Santa Claus," humming them or singing them because I, I was heavily involved with musicals, and you know, I was trumpet player in high school, and I sang on the side as well. So I found myself humming these tunes a lot. Go walking through the halls of school. I mean, I hummed a lot of other Disney tunes, but I hummed a lot of songs from this movie. And people were like, man, 
why do you like that movie so much? And obviously people were thinking, oh yeah, he's not gothic, but why does he like that movie so much? It's the songs, I mean, they're, they're amazing. I have every single lyric of every single song in that movie memorized. The bizarre characters, I mean, at this point in time, you know, when you think Disney, you think, yeah, obviously great story, great songs and music and great characters, but these characters were probably some of the most bizarre that you'd ever see in a film, but it's all 100% from the mind of Tim Burton, and it's undeniably and unmistakably his. Jack, you know, the mayor that has two faces, Dr. Finkelstein, who can literally open his head and scratch his brain, Sally, Ragdoll, Zero, who has a mini jack-o'-lantern for a nose. I mean, these are some pretty, I mean, these are awesome characters. Bizarre, but they're awesome at the same time. And, you know, I think audiences is like, oh, they were so used to the fairy tale side of Disney. They're used to the cute and fuzzy little characters you'd see in you know, Snow White and all those other great films. But Nightmare gave Disney audiences something different. And that's what I really loved about it. And finally, I just think it's just one of those films. I, I know I mentioned it can be enjoyed during Halloween and Christmas. But honestly, it's just a film that can be enjoyed all throughout the year. And I don't know about you guys, but I am looking forward to watching this film year after year after year. And I, like many other great films out there, as a cinephile, I cannot wait to share my favorite movies with my kids someday. I mean, we're on, we're on our fourth or fifth generation. I think the fourth generation of kids is experiencing Nightmare Before Christmas right now. And there will be many more. This movie, that's one of the great things about cinema. It's one of the great things about art is that it will outlive and outlast us all. And whatever medium we're watching film on, Nightmare Before Christmas will be there. And I definitely want to come back to this movie again in a future episode. But Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode. So until next week, remember, stay safe, keep washing those hands, and have a good evening.